Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this is part two on how to do a cardiac CT scan. And remember last time I left off where I mentioned that we need to figure out how to deliver the contrast and making the point that a preset timing cannot be used. So what can you use, bolus tracking or test bolus? Well, with bolus tracking, use a set threshold. Again, depending on your system, the faster your scan time, the higher the threshold you want to hit, but typically you pick a threshold in the ascending aorta above the coronaries, and then you wait about five seconds when you hit a peak threshold, let's say 100, then you start scanning. Now, of course, you have to know what your delay is when you press the button on your scanner because it could be between three and six seconds. You get the timing just right. Now, there have been articles comparing, there was one article particularly that compared bolus and uh, uh, tracking and test bolus, and they like bolus tracking better. Now, part of the reason was, when you read the final conclusion of the article, is they realized on the test bolus their delay time was wrong, and if they would have given a different delay time, things would have worked out. But uh, either worked fine. You could do either. Now, I'll tell you, uh, for some applications, like pulmonary embolism studies, we use bolus tracking. Main pulmonary artery, 180 Hounsfield units, works terrific. But for cardiac CT, I like the test bolus. And you can ask, why do we do a test bolus? Well, when you do a test bolus, it's like a mini CT scan. The patient feels warm, the patient holds their breath, you see the entire interaction. It's like a practice run. You see how the patient holds their breath, for example. Everything is happening, they listen to you, the whole process works well. So I do like it. Typically what you do is inject 20 ml of contrast, 4 cc's or 5 cc's a second, do it exactly like you're going to do the regular scan, followed by a flush, and about 10 seconds out, start scanning every 2 to 3 seconds for about 10 scans, and pick the brightest point, and then typically we add 6 seconds for the scan time. So for example, here's just a typical graph that gets created on the scanner. You're picking the point in the ascending aorta, and you can see it from where it contrasts in the pulmonary artery mainly, to where it's nicely in the aorta. So again, you pick the perfect point on that curve and it works very nicely. And you could see um, the sequencing very, very simple. Let me show you one more sequence. And you can see contrast is coming in, in the pulmonary arteries, going back out the pulmonary arteries, coming back in. The aorta is now starting to enhance. And now here you can see it has peak enhancement. And now you can see the aorta is washing out. It does make the point uh, that several points it makes. One, the pulmonary arteries are optimal before the aorta. That's important when you do p pulmonary embolism studies. You can see the timing is different, but it's also important when you're doing uh, you know, triple rule outs. You can see what's best for the pulmonary artery is not going to be good for the aorta, and what's good for the aorta is not the best for the pulmonary artery. And so you have to play some kind of games to make certain that you meet the needs of both studies. So again, timing is critical and when you want to scan you want to be at the peak of enhancement. So in terms of injection protocols, uh, classic 64, 80 cc's at 4 ml a second, we typically now have gone up to 5, saline flush, so total scan time, injection time is 30 seconds and uh, that works pretty nicely. Your scan times are in the 12 to 15 second range. With dual source, we lower the volume a bit. We always do 5 cc's, both for the contrast and for the saline flush. Now you can do faster injection rates. People do up to 8. I don't think it's necessary. You can give larger contrast volumes. Typically not necessary. Now what some people are doing is, particularly when you're doing uh, triple rule outs, 
is instead of giving just pure saline, you give saline mixed with contrast. So there are different mixes, and maybe if we have time, we talk about that. Now, one thing people do ask in terms of protocols is do you do calcium scoring routinely prior to the CTA? Some people say yes because they use the calcium scoring as a way of determining whether to proceed. If it's too high a calcium score, they won't do the CTA, but that almost never happens. And you're not sitting there scoring the patient, quite frankly. Other people say, well, the calcium scoring is good because even if it doesn't give, even if I don't see any stenosis on the CTA, I got a score that helps with risk stratification, so that can be important. Uh, other people say, forget it, there's no need for calcium scoring prior to a coronary CTA. So, you know, there's some schools of thought, coronary CTA, uh, adding on the calcium score is a very minimal dose. And just a nice example, here's a calcium score, nice dense plaque, and here it is on the CTA. You can see a nice eccentric plaque with positive remodeling. Very nice visualization, very, very nicely shown. Now, of course, we recognize that if we have a case like this with so much calcification, very high score, it can be problematic. Now, the question is not to do the study. This has come up, here's a score of 1,500. Should you say forget about it? Well, some insurance companies are suggesting that should be the answer. Other people are saying, well, what it means is it's going to be more difficult that there is no absolute value. It's kind of the distribution of the plaque. So I'll give you just the two articles which sit on both sides of the argument. Here's an article by Bergstaller who says that in patients with severe calcification, 1391 average, um, a high prevalence of coronary disease in a larger patient, percentage of patients with heart rhythm irregularities, the data indicates that the accuracy of dual source is limited in clinical routine. And they say that in particular overestimation of stenosis mostly in severe calcified segments remains the key limitation at present the widespread use of CT uh, even dual source and high-risk patients with known coronary artery disease and heavily calcified coronaries cannot be recommended. Okay, interesting thought. Harvey Hecht on the other hand says that the calcium score above which it is recommended that CTA not be performed has been increasing. Currently scores over 1,000 are thought to prohibit CTA's accurate interpretation. However, a reasoned approach suggests that there is no absolute limit that applies to all centers and all patients. So for example, they make the point that a score of over 1,000 or large dense calcifications with a score less than 1,000 should alert the personnel to potential problems and should not be followed by CTA if the physician who's going to interpret the scan does not have extensive experience in these cases. But they, go, but they say if you do have experience, it should not be a problem. Now, the issue with calcification is somewhat also interesting. Here's an article by Sharia. Um, it shows that the absence of calcification by coronary CT is associated with a low adverse risk and therefore can be used as a tool to console patients about the risk of such events that a negative score or zero score means very low risk. And that really has been proven in the literature very nicely. But again, people like Lau have made the point that absence of calcification does not reliably exclude coronary artery disease. And this article more recently by Kelly says that you can have a considerable plaque burden in patients with no calcification. And that although calcium scoring does add prognostic value to standard risk factors, Imaging the vessel wall directly may be helpful to identify non-calcified plaque and guide therapy. And that gets into the whole idea perhaps in the future with lower dose CT, we should be doing 
CT angiography as a screening tool. And here were some of his numbers that 325 patients had a normal score and half of these had non-calcified plaque on coronary CTA. That's a hard number and maybe they're calling very tiny plaque, but they showed that 12 patients had at least moderate stenosis, five was severe, and eight of the 12 patients with significant stenosis underwent angiography with subsequent stenting. So again, making the point that a normal score is great, but it's not gonna be perfect. Now, the concept about scanning patients with scores that are elevated can be shown in this case. Here's a markedly elevated calcium score in this patient. But if you look carefully, we did the CTA, and when you look at the CTA, look at that stenosis in the patient's LAD. This was a greater than 70% stenosis. Let me show it to you a few more ways. And you can see it very nicely. This patient underwent stenting, over 70% stenosis seen on angiography. So again, high calcium score will make it more difficult, but it depends how the calcium is distributed, and you can still get very, very important information, which we did in this case, which basically saved the patient's life. Now, a couple other points. When we do the reconstructions of a CT scan, we do two reconstructions. One, we target the heart. That gives you the best spatial resolution. We also then reconstruct with a full field of view. We say you have to read the lungs. You have to look at the entire scan. And I know that's an argument, but here's just a couple comments. Nortrim, viewing cardiac CTs with limited field of view can result in missing more than two-thirds of nodules over a sonometer and 80% of nodules smaller than one sonometer. And then the issue, of course, of incidental findings, you know, there was an article by Budoff saying, hey, too much problems. Well, Nordstrom found potential benefit. You can debate whether or not you should uh, do the study, but once an exam is performed, the noblest approach is to view and evaluate all available data, to apply appropriate judgment, and to proceed in the best interest of the patient and society. So let me rephrase that. Once you've done the study, you have to look at the information. You can argue about false positives. Again, great, but if you do the study, you gotta look at the images because you will find cancers. So it's just very important. Now in terms of protocols, scanners will vary, but several comments, collimation, narrow collimation, 0.75 to 0.6 typically, Slice thickness reconstructed with typically in the 0.6 to 0.75 millimeter range. Most scanners are rotating about three times a second. How wide the rotation, whether it's um, up to 40 millimeters at a time, will depend on the individual scanner. And again, sequencing, we'll talk about prospective versus retrospective gating, whether you need to just reconstruct a small segment or the entire data set. And again, prospective versus retrospective gating, I've spoken about that before. Key differences, of course, prospective gating, we pick a set point, lower dose, but you better have a regular heart rate. The R interval has to be constant because when you pick 65%, that's all you're basically getting. Yes, you can make it a little bit wider and increase the dose, but typically you're picking a target point as opposed to retrospective gating, which is the more classic technique, continuous acquisition of data, continuous recording of the ECG, and allows you to reconstruct at any point in the RR interval. So retrospective gating means continuous acquisition. You can do cine loops. The downside is radiation dose. And let me just make just a couple comments about radiation dose. We've spoken before about how coronary CT, even two years back, 
The doses were higher than we would like, but were the same or less than nuclear medicine studies. But we know from articles by Einstein, for example, the potential for increased risk for cancer over a patient's lifetime, particularly if they're younger, is something that we cannot overlook. So we need to make certain that we have the Alara principle, the lowest dose possible. So some things, dual source was one thing that can be used. It's about a 10% to 20% reduction, although if you do it uh, in the right patient, it could be up to 50%. We talk about prospective gating, and there have been several articles now uh, focusing on select points in the R interval, as I mentioned a few moments ago, and then in the rest of the scan, you're turning the X-ray off. Well, when you look at this, if you can do it right, it is terrific because prospective gating substantially reduces the dose. And in fact, in this article by Earls, they found the dose dropped 83%. Indeed, very impressive. And it gave the patient a mean dose of under 3 millisieverts. Okay, so it dropped it substantially. And when they looked at their patient selection and their evaluation, they got better quality studies or equal quality studies with prospective as they did with the retrospective technique. Now again, several things I'll just mention about prospective. Heart rate needs to be about 60. Typically, you go to about 75% that you can pad. So 70 to 80 might be something you would do initially. Minimum tube requirement is 230. Uh, high heart rates, irregular heart rates, prospective gaining is not going to work. But if you get it right in the right patient, this is the quality information you can do. Now, most recently, dual-source scanners are starting to also do the step-and-shoot or prospective gaining. And you can see that it, in this article, gave diagnostic quality visualization, about 98% of all coronary segments and it lowered the dose to about 2.6 millisieverts, and even as low as 1.2 millisieverts with a 100 kV protocol. So again, something to look at, and of course, regardless of what technique you use, you might also use bismuth shielding, which will drop dose by about 40% uh, as well. So again, something to consider, something to think about. So we've looked at a number of things, and as I said, you gotta do multiple steps in a cardiac CT. We'll talk in a moment about interpreting the data. But the point is that unless you get a good quality data set, interpretation is just not going to happen or it's going to be so hard, so difficult, and so inaccurate. So I think in this talk, and I'm going to stop here, hopefully I've shown you what you need to do from pre-medication to monitoring the patient to delivering the contrast to optimizing the contrast. All of those things become critical. And if you do that, you're going to get a great study. If you get a great study, then it's easy to interpret. And what we'll speak about in a little bit is how we interpret that scan. And with that, let me say thanks very much and speak to you later.